Welcome again to another edition of the Digital Guardian Podcast. I swear, we're thinking about changing the name. We just need to workshop some stuff. <laughs> this is episode 18. Will, I think we're getting to like a little bit of a groove here. The last episode was, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. Episode 17 with Ron Gula. Yeah, we're uh, getting into a nice little pattern here. Yeah, I'm happy to kind of find a groove, find a pattern here. Our guest today is Christopher Ellison. Tofts, better known as by some. Spent long storied history at uh, Trend Micro, did some time at Thambala, F-Secure. He's currently at RSA. Has one of the better titles, at least on his LinkedIn and his Twitter, Digital Virologist. <laughs> but he is currently a principal malware scientist at RSA. Tofs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me today, especially on the Valentine's Day. So, Yeah. 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 Very special day, which is why we wanted to have you, of all people, Toss, because you know you are near and dear to my heart. So, <laughs> happy, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> For those listening in the audience at home or in your car or you know at work or wherever, this is Will. Chris and I have, a, Toss and I have a, a, a long history. In fact, we both worked at Danball at different, in different eras under uh, Gunter Ullman. And I actually had the privilege of hiring Toss away from Danball at RSA NetWitness when we founded the RSA First Watch but Research and Intelligence team. So this is really a special episode for me because it's a bit like having family on the show. So thanks, Toss, for making time for us. Yeah, thank you, Will. Thank you for having me uh, in this episode. No, the pleasure is all ours. So, Toss, knowing that uh, everything you say on the show is your opinion and not that of your employer, we'll go ahead and, <laughs> and dive right in. Toss, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a insight into the, your history, how you got started in the space, what, what drew you to information security as an industry? You know, your history is, like many of ours, like mine in particular, makes me feel good about myself because I'm not as old as I think I am. But it shows, does show me that other guys, we've been, we've been doing this for a long time. So why don't you tell people who are listening, what led you to the space and how you got started? All right. So first of all, we're not old. We're 18 and a half. <laughs> so everybody has to remember that. So I started, actually, I think by accident. When I was in college, my course was uh, computer engineering. And one of the requirements of that course is uh, assembly language. So I remember when I graduated from college, I got a telegram from Trend Micro. It's a telegram, not an email. So for kids out there, you can Google what the telegram is. Old school. It's, it's like Twitter on paper. So it's short and it's direct to the point. So I got a telegram from Trend Micro inviting me for an interview for a short exam. And before I actually had no idea what Trend Micro was, because when I was in college, most of the uh, antivirus solutions that we were using or that was popular in school was uh, McAfee. I, I came in and uh, they gave me an assembly language exam. And uh, I remember I, I didn't do well on, on that exam. So I, I thought I'd, I failed already. I didn't even reach uh, 50%. But then the hiring manager told me it was one of the highest scores they got from that exam. So I was surprised. And I went through the interview process. They hired me. Trend Micro put me on a six-month training on how to reverse malware. And that's how it started. Uh, it got my interest eat. I remember before, when I was younger, I, I wanted to design computer systems, uh, gaming systems, in fact. But then uh, cybersecurity came calling. So here I am today. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and that's, it's actually interesting when you say that they give you an assembler, a machine language test which makes me think back on my own education, spending an inordinate amount of time toiling over low-level languages 
and compilers. I remember I remember thinking that and having tests that were similar to those in academic environments where 50% or close to 50% was actually a really good grade. <laughs> so that's cool. So you got to trend. Why don't you tell us a little bit of what, what you started doing when you were at trend? What was what stood out for you at Trend Micro when you were watching as you know the, the space start to emerge as an industry? I mean, you mentioned McAfee being kind of one of the only commercial uh, available uh, commercial available solutions out at the time. Certainly there was semantic in those days. Trend Micro was an early an early player, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what that looked like in the work that you did when you were at Trend Micro? When uh, I was in Trend Micro, Trend Labs was just starting. So I was one of the pioneers of uh, Trend Labs. And I remember before we would be reversing, analyzing uh, DOS malware. So it was really quick. Like the turnaround, sometimes it's just minutes uh, if it's a little bit difficult, hours. And then uh, we had to learn on the fly. So we had to uh, like research. I don't think Google was around that time yet, or Google was just starting. And then uh, Windows malware came out. Uh, at first, Windows came out, and people were saying, there's no more malware in Windows. There was malware in Windows 95. So we had to research in our own trial and error. I remember there were only a handful of us doing it, and the uh, we had trainers coming in from Taiwan that also was trained by a Trend Micro, older than us. Most of the training we got helped us a lot and also our own research, which became the foundation for uh, training for Trend Micro. From what the early researchers found and early trainers found, it was, it was all compiled and became the training materials for uh, Trend University. Nice. So that, that's interesting when you start talking about like the pre-Google days, right? I mean, so you're talking about, I don't want to date you too much because I know you said we're all over 18 here, but um, <laughs> like sometime in the 1990s, let's just set it that way. So that would be like, you know, back in those days, right? There were a multitude of search engine options, right? Um, and I, I definitely remember a pre-Google world. And remember like us? What's that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, GeoCities, right? You had, you know, Hotspot. Yeah, yeah, Alta Vista. I used to like Alta Vista years ago. So there was there was like a lot of uh, there were a lot of options, but you're right. It was it was still kind of a a small space in a small world, but it was growing, right? And that the information wasn't as freely as available, wasn't easy or as easy to communicate and identify peers in industry. So a lot of individual threads and lines of research were taking place independent of one another. And it was interesting, right? So, so Trend Micro took you from the Philippines, right, which is where you're from originally, yep. and brought you to the golden shores of, of the west coast of the United States. So tell us a little bit about that, how that happened. I remember it was uh, Y2K, and then uh, Trend Micro, I was the one, one of the people assigned to, to go to uh, our Irvine office in 1999 to uh, make sure that uh, we're on guard if something happens during Y2K. I think that program really worked. Our office in, in the U.S. during that time, like what happened, although nothing happened in Y2K, but uh, having that readiness in the U.S. and having that presence there helped uh, our Irvine office also in reacting to threats. Instead of like calling the Philippines, uh, making sure things get done, if you're there on site, things move uh, a little bit quicker. So it became a, a regular thing. I would go back to the Philippines in Manila and then uh, would go back to the U.S., assigned for months here in the U.S., and that's where it all started. Trend Micro decided, you know what, uh, since this program is working, we'll do this into a regular thing. Nice. How many years did you spend in total at, at, uh, at Trend? I think eight years, if I'm not mistaken. 
Nice, nice. And then after after Trend, you you moved over to F-Secure, right? Yes. After Trend Micro, I was hired by F-Secure to uh, build their Kuala Lumpur R&D. So I remember when, when, I, when I was talking with F-Secure, the idea there was to just have a small team. And then I was, I was supposed to be hired as a malware analyst during that time. But then uh, when I was uh, conversing with the hiring manager, who would end up to be my future boss, he found opportunities wherein he would say, I think he would be the right person to do this build and establish our uh, R&D in Kuala Lumpur. We talked, and then I said, yeah, sure, I'll go to F-Secure and do this. And it was an exciting time for me because it was my first time to be in Kuala Lumpur. The only thing I have an idea about Kuala Lumpur is what I, I read about it. So uh, I, I, I think I lived there for almost two years. So I started hiring uh, people. I started with, uh, with a couple, and then it grew into 15, and then it was uh, becoming bigger and bigger. So I had to hire uh, managers and I have to subdivide the team. And all in all, I think the largest number that I had for that, for R&D, if my count is correct, it's around 60. So it was divided into two departments, it really research and development. So we have a team of researchers that are doing threat research and a team of developers doing development based on what the researchers are finding in their threat research uh, tasks. Nice. Were you working with Miko over there, Tofs? Yeah, yep, yep. Miko was in Finland during that time. So we had the same manager during that time. And then I would, uh, uh, we would have like weekly meetings. And every time I go to Finland, I would, I would have the opportunity to meet him and ask him, talk to him in person. He's, he's a really cool guy. I think he, uh, we met a couple of times in RSA conferences a while back. I think the, I think the first time we saw each other there was when you just hired me, Will, when, uh, I think it was 2000. 12, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, and then, of course, you ended up from F-Secure, you went to Dambala. And, uh, and, of course, I had been at Dambala with Gunter Ullman, who's now over at Microsoft as the CTO of the Enterprise and Cloud Business Unit. And you were there You were there for a while. I mean, and Dambala did some interesting work. It was very pioneering at the time. You know, obviously, it was, a pro- it was rooted in research that came out of Georgia Tech. So what were your thoughts on what was going on in, in the industry at the time and uh, what you were doing at Dambala? what you were seeing from a global threat landscape perspective at that time. So uh, when I was in Dambala, one thing that I really liked uh, when I was in Dambala, there are lots of really, really smart people there. Uh, most of them are uh, PhDs from uh, Georgia Tech, Roberto Perdisi, Manos, Antonakakis. I've learned a lot from them, especially when it comes to machine learning. One thing that I really liked there is that uh, I was able to contribute my uh, malware know-how and I uh, was able to write some papers with them. And uh, I also had the opportunity to learn from really experts in, in machine learning. Until now, it's, it, it looks so easy when they do it and then when they explain it to me. But then when I do it, it's, it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. When I was there, I sat between Roberto Parisi and Manos. And uh, I imagine you, you know those guys pretty well. And it was always a very interesting thing to be around these guys who had you know, uh, we're doing in some cases post PhD work and then their PhD work that would lead to some really pioneering things. And uh, Dambala, I always thought was really interesting because there were so many guys and gals who kind of went through Dambala's hallowed halls, so to speak, who were really, really top drawer people and players and professionals. And it's kind of like a virtual who's who or a veritable who's who, I guess, of players in the space. You've got you know, Paul Royal, Chris Davis, yourself, 
Lance James, Sean Bodmer, you've got Manos, you've got Roberto, you've got obviously the founders, Winky Lee, you've got Merrick yeah. First, you've got Gunter, you've got Dave Dagan, you've got, you know, I'll include myself humbly amongst those numbers and, and many, many others, right? So lots of people, lots of bright minds with, uh, with lots of great capabilities, most of whom have all gone on to do some really pretty amazing things. So uh, really cool opportunity. And then, of course, you and I reconnected and, uh, and I was able to 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 woo you away since it's Valentine's Day, I'm using strong language. Woo you away <laughs> from Dambala to come to this new team we were building at uh, what was now kind of referred to as RSA Netwitness at the time, and now of course is just part of RSA, which is a part of EMC, which is a part of Dell. Working underneath Tim Belcher and myself and Eddie Schwartz and uh, Meet Yoranin and Brian Girardi and all those guys. So tell me about that. What did you, what was it like when you left Dambala and came to this? Uh, emerging team, which I, th- I always look at you as being a, a co-founder of that team. At the time, it was just myself and Alex Cox and Stephen Sipes, and then uh, you joined us. Yeah, it was really exciting because uh, I always it always excites me if I join a team that's just beginning because it helps me to leave an imprint, and it also gave gave us the opportunity to make it right. Like most of us that uh, were the founders of RSA First Watch, we came from different teams and we learned a lot. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. Like for me, having a team like that, it always excites me. Like uh, when I remember when we were talking, uh, when you were hiring me, when we were talking about uh, what the team would look like, that really got me excited. So I said, yeah, let's let's do it. Let, let's go for it. Yeah, and we were able to introduce and bring on some other great minds too. We had guys like James Pleger, John McNeil, of course a whole host of other folks and do some interesting work, you know, certainly some of the work we did on the Boho campaign from oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really like that paper that, uh, that we wrote. I remember I was, uh, I was speaking in one of the conferences, I think after we wrote that paper and, uh, water holding was one of the known industry term that they wrote on the, on the whiteboard that, uh, if you say it, you'll have to drink. And, and, and one of the organizers, uh, we were talking about it, and he said, "How did you guys come up with uh, with uh, water holding?" So I, I told him the story, and I remember we had a uh, we had a meeting about it. Like, hey, this is the term we have, and I remember people were saying, "I think we could we could come up with something better," but then nothing. No one came up with something better, and then it stuck, and now it's an industry term. So yeah, <laughs> I'm actually always proud of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lack of imagination on the parts of about you know five, six, seven guys, and <laughs> that became an industry standard term. Pretty- <laughs> but you were the one who came up with it, Will. I, I remember you already had it written on paper. I, you know, I, I don't know if it was Alex or I. It was one of us, but yeah, I mean, it was so it was it was definitely you know something we were kind of all using as a as a metaphor, right? And it was and it's a good one, and it worked really well. Uh, and yeah, it absolutely became it absolutely became a an industry term, I would almost go as far as to say on par with APT. <laughs> with that in mind, let's get into some uh, some questions for you, Toss, and let's get Chris Brook engaged as well. So, you know, Toss, let me ask you a question. You know, we've talked about your history. We've talked about a lot of the work you've done, some of the folks you've worked with. I would certainly love to hear more about what you're doing today at RSA and what else you've been working on from a research perspective, the books that you've written. What are you most passionate about in terms of when you look at the threat the threat landscape, and when you look at the industry as a whole, are you more more passionate about vulnerabilities or malware, or the exploitation via POCs of vulnerabilities and malware? What really kind of gets you excited 
when you today in 2018 versus where you're at five or 10 years ago, <laughs> what, what gives you a reason to get up in the morning and keep doing the job? Oh, aside from coffee? Yeah. <laughs> I think malware still excites me. Like uh, the way I see it, it's not the end all right now. It's just a tool when it comes to attacks. But one thing that excites me about malware is that uh, you learn a lot from it. Dissecting it, you learn about different techniques, different technologies used by uh, malware writers. So if there's a new malware out there and it goes uh, goes on my desk, it gets me excited. Number one, uh, aside from learning new technologies, it leads me to different threat infrastructure that supports the malware. So like for me, if I have a malware, one question that I would always ask is that how it got in. And sometimes the infection vector used our vulnerabilities so that would lead me to researching that certain vulnerability. And then from that vulnerability, uh, I would find out that other malware families are using it, which would lead me to research those uh, malware families. And uh, so malware gets me excited. And then from there, I branch to different threat infrastructure that supports the malware. And I'm able to paint a picture of the whole attack ecosystem. Uh, what was the last kind of malware that really got you like, oh, wow, uh, this is something else? What was the last thing that kind of blew your mind that you saw? I won't name specific malware names or uh, tie them to threat group actors. But one thing that's really, really piqued my interest is that uh, they're using commercial solutions as their threat infrastructure. Like, for example, malware that are used in certain cybercrime or used by uh, cybercrime syndicates or threat actors, they use social media like Twitter, GitHub to send command and control to their malware. And then they also use the legitimate cloud storage to send uh, stolen data. And most of the stolen data are images. The data itself is stolen, it's encrypted and hidden in that uh, image. This got me excited. I remember I, I, I created a presentation out of it. I call it Follow my malware on, if I remember correctly, Twitbot. Follow my malware on Twitter. So, so this is like a, this is you know this kind of reminds me of like I don't know it was about ten not, not quite ten years ago when Kubeface was was identified in the wild right and, and it was the first real botnet that it, that was in Trojan that had been specifically cracked to take advantage of Facebook as a as an infection vector. So you're saying this is this one in this case there was a twit a Twitbot that was actually leveraged and utilizing Twitter's infrastructure and that. The data, the data that was that was stolen was actually it, it, there was a form of encryption somewhat equivalent to stenography that was utilized in that process. Is that how that works, Todd? Yeah, yeah. Those are uh, some of the uh, infrastructure that those malware are using. So uh, I remember I was talking with, uh, with in a panel before somebody asked me, "What do you think is a good command and control infrastructure?" I remember answering that the the best command and control infrastructure is an infrastructure that people trust. Most of it are social media or forums or even web pages. As long as there's uh, data to be read, it can be interpreted by malware. Like, for example, most spammers, they would have malware already running in a compromised system that's actually uh, monitoring, let's say, phone.com. And phone.com suddenly said, a new phone version Y is coming out in the spring of 2018. So what usually happens, that information would be posted on that uh, page, which the malware is monitoring. 
And then once it sees that uh, information, it would uh, interpret it as a command for them saying, you know what, we can now send emails or uh, spam emails to uh, the address book of the machine that we have a foothold on and tell them, you know what, you can get early access to this phone Y from phone.com. Just click on this link. So it's, it's just like they're using that web page as their command and control. Like uh, the traditional command and control, you would have like, like a command and control server or command and control domain hosted somewhere or hosted in a country that doesn't like us or doesn't really care what they have on their server. And then it would send commands to malware. But uh, most malwares that I've seen in the past three, five years that are really, really interesting are those that leverage legitimate data sources as their command and control, like Twitter, Facebook, a website that has uh, information, even forums. Like uh, an attacker could post something in a forum. Like he could say, I really like Metal Gear Solid 5. And then uh, that malware, if he sees that on a forum, would do something, a command based on that uh, phrase or based on that sentence. That's interesting. So that almost sounds as though the malware you're talking about has uh, natural language processing capabilities. Are you, let, maybe that's a good juxtaposition point to kind of talk about some of the things you've observed in your, in your research within the context of RSA and outside of it. In your 2013 book, Malware Rootkits and Botnet's a Beginner's Guide, the first edition, you talked a lot about the, the, the rise of what, what you refer to as the malware factory, right? The concept of manufacturing ecosystems leveraged by organized cyber criminal entities, which were above and beyond something that one may have seen in the, prior to that, that was driven by maybe one or two, or maybe a loose confederation of people. Uh, do you think that that malware factory concept has evolved over time since you wrote that about that in your first book, Toss? And has it, have you started to see evidence of the inclusion of machine learning and artificial intelligence capabilities within adversarial tools? Yeah, like uh, I think it's still going on until today. They have better tools, better uh, malware technologies that they're using. So I came about the malware factory concept uh, when I was researching one malware. I remember uh, one of the customers uh, told me that uh, they were uh, infected by this malware and it bypassed everything that they have on their system. Most of the solutions that they have or all. When I finished dissecting it, removing all of the protections, it turned out to be a very old uh, malware. And then uh, I was looking at different underground forums. Most of the things there that are being sold are like malware, five cents, 10 cents. And they, they would say, you know what, we could easily create all of this malware for you. And that was when uh, the rise of DIY kits was, uh, I mean, the, uh, DIY kits was uh, on the rise. Like uh, you could easily create malware that looked totally different. It's just like a, it's like metamorphic and polymorphic malware on uh, on steroids. Virtually, they could create infinite amount of malware because it uses time as a seed. So as long as time exists, they would they would be able to create a unique uh, malware sample for that. Based from those research and that concept, I created a, uh, a proof of concept malware factory that during my talks uh, at that time, after I, uh, I wrote the book, I showed them a live demonstration of how it's done. Most of the people that was uh, in the audience during that time didn't realize how easy it was to create those kinds of uh, malware, which are totally different in form on file, on disk. And the only solution 
that was, I think, in, in my humble opinion, is that I think machine learning would help on, on this one in identifying like if a certain malware was created by a certain malware factory or a certain sample created by a certain uh, DIY kit. Some untrained uh, researchers would aptly say, you know what, this is a new variant of this malware and then uh, would name it a totally different variant. It should still be a variant, but then uh, they would end up naming it to XX, XXY, XXZ because they totally look different from each other when, when in fact it's only created by one malware factory or one DIY kit. That's interesting. So do you think, Tafs, and from what you've seen, since you kind of uh, began talking about that, com- you know, that, that concept, do you think that there's been a movement toward more of that, uh, for lack of a better term, quality controlled, high grade, assembly line driven, stylized malware? Or are we still seeing more, more often than not, uh, one-offs being written by individual authors or maybe loose confederations of authors, you know, excluding things like state-sponsored entities? Yeah, I think it depends on the attack. If it's an opportunistic attack or if you just want to uh, sell malware samples, Malware Factory is your go-to infrastructure. But if you're a highly funded threat actor that has a directive or like a, uh, a specific target, most of the time you would contract a malware writer to just write a specific malware for you. One thing that uh, I've seen so far is that uh, malware writers would always use what works for them. We might see a, uh, an attack on an organization that has different codes. Like the malware used uh, to attack that organization would have different codes coming from different malware uh, pieces. Probably if they want uh, information stealing capability, they might use an existing information stealer and just get that module from there and add it to their new malware creation. And they just mix it up. They mix it up because uh, if they just copy and paste the actual code, it would get detected easily if that malware is not uh, encrypted. When it comes to targeted attacks, uh, most of the malware I've seen are really targeted towards that uh, organization. It's specifically written for that organization. That's interesting. I think it's an interesting observation. Chris, well, Chris, what do you think about that? I mean, obviously, when you were at Threat Post, you guys... And by the way, Toss, I don't know if you knew that Chris... I had formerly been with Threatpost before he came on board here, but uh, that's where he came from. You guys obviously saw a lot of this with your ties to Kaspersky. I mean, what are your thoughts on this, Chris? What what Tosh is talking about with regards to this concept of uh, manufacturing ecosystems, the malware factory, as it, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that was definitely the case, you know, five years ago. I feel like writing about a lot of uh, a lot about systematic, it almost seems like schools of malware that would just come out and uh, manufactured on en masse like that. Yeah, interesting stuff, right? So let's shift gears a minute, Tosh, and let's talk about, you know, obviously with your experience in vulnerability analysis and malware analysis and then proof of concept development for exploitation purposes, let's get your thoughts on, on, on kind of a hot topic item, and that's the concept of the breach. One question that I had for you was, number one, what are your thoughts on breaches in comparison to intent-driven campaigns, you know, that are either led by criminal entities or by nation-states or nation-state proxies? Where do you think do you think we're placing it a greater degree of emphasis on genericized breaches and maybe perhaps missing some of the more nuanced and perhaps more purposeful in their in terms of intention and opportunity attacks? What do you think about that? So uh, when it comes to uh, breaches, most of the breaches might happen because uh, somebody run a malware on that network 
and that malware happened to be like uh, it's not really targeted on that organization, but it was more of uh, like spread the seed around and see who gets infected. If a big company gets infected because somebody was smart enough to follow what's in that spam email or browse to a website that uh, is compromised and then the, the system ending up being compromised and then they became breached and then uh, the attackers who are just waiting and monitoring their, uh, let's say, domains or servers they have control of that the data drop domains, they say, hey, you know what? We're getting information from this company that has been breached. They said, oh, cool. We didn't know that they'll get infected, but they got infected. So we have all of their information. So the difference between that is uh, when it comes to a breach in general, it can be targeted, like uh, intent-driven, or it could be like also opportunistic. For me, the most dangerous one is intent-driven campaign. Like uh, it's it's the way I see it, it's similar to targeted attack. We're in a like a government, a foreign government would specifically target our government or uh, information that's uh, in one of our government agencies wherein they would really craft something about that network or craft something that would be convincing enough to people within that organization so that uh, they run an email, they go to a link or download something and then run it in their network and then get infected. So when I hear the term breach, it could be intent-driven or it could be opportunistic. But when I hear intent-driven, it means that uh, somebody really targeted you based on that. They, they could have, uh, they did their uh, reconnaissance, they did their uh, research, they know, they know something about the people within that company, uh, vulnerable people within that company, they know what are the networks or uh, solutions that are in that company. And most of this information are public anyways. Like uh, most companies, if they want to hire somebody, they would put in their uh, ad, like network system admin needed, must be well-versed in this server or must be well-versed in using security solution A, must be well-versed in managing this kinds of system. So, so all of those information are already there. Most of the people that work in that company could easily be found on social media or uh, in forums because some people still use their uh, company emails in logging in to different websites. Like if they're going to attack company A, they could just search for at companya.com or companya.net on the, uh, or .mail on different search engines. And then they might find out, oh, this guy works there and he happens to be a CEO. And you know what? Based on his Twitter, it's Facebook. He's going on a conference. So for us to breach their company, how about we send him, not an email, how about we send him an envelope with a letter posing as a certificate from that conference with a USB stick inside it that says, uh, in this USB stick is a summary of all the talks that you've attended or information about the conference. Most people would trust that more an email because uh, most of them probably train, you know what, don't open any emails, but people forgot to tell them don't open snail mails as well that have USB sticks and then just plug them into your, uh, into your system. A lot of social engineering at hand here too. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, you know, I, I oftentimes am asked, you know, my thoughts on the concept of a breach versus a compromise versus a, an intent-driven attack. 
right? And I, and I think there is a material difference. You know, I don't know that the, that the that the net net of it at the end of the day is different in most people's minds. But you know, I, I think that there is a difference between a purposeful, a, a mindfully driven attack that, that leverages uh, reconnaissance and observation and monitoring of of an, of an organization and its people and personnel. You know, in in terms of a generic attack or excuse me, breach. So I do think there's a difference, you know, following suit, you know, obviously one of the largest breaches of the last few years. And again, I, I think the term is kind of loaded now. Chris, what do you think? Brooke, what do you think about that term? Is it becoming a little nebulous? What the term data breach? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's one every day, pretty much, pretty much. It feels like what was the, <laughs> what, what was the stat about last year? How many were there? I saw something about this the other day and I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact number and it's going to drive me crazy. Too were, many, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, looking for the exact number, I can't find it. But it was, uh, you know, obviously set a record, record breaking, and it's going to keep on being like that. Probably, I don't mean to be negative, but <laughs> not the kind of record you necessarily want to have. You know, you ought to be uh, celebrating. So, with that in mind, I mean, obviously, I think in my mind, last year's largest or most profound one uh, would have to be Equifax's uh, compromise. You know, obviously, in that particular breach scenario, I would actually call it a compromise more so than a breach, personally, because in that case, a known vulnerability, an Apache Struts vulnerability, CPE 2017-5638 was exploited, and Equifax became aware of that roughly around the time of July 29th of last year. In that particular compromise, uh, over 143 million Americans' personally identifiable information was <clears throat> was exfiltrated and stolen, right? So names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, driver's license numbers, credit card numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, so Toss and Brooke, you know, with regard to that, what do you think in terms of, we just kind of jokingly talked about it a little bit, but in terms of broader, larger scale, possible compromises, at least that term, you know, versus breach, because I think breach is kind of sloppy, such as Equifax. Do you think we're in for more of that in 2018 and 19? Uh, do you think that, that Equifax might be the high watermark and maybe the, 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 the bell toll to wake people up? Or do you think it's just going to kind of be lost in the, in the, uh, the, the noise versus the signal? Yeah, I, I think there'll be more of that especially if the attackers are experiencing success when it comes to uh, compromises. And uh, most of the information that they need, that they can sell or they could uh, use for their own purpose, most of those information are hosted in companies or are in companies that have, when it comes to patching, really don't patch. Most of these uh, breaches, at least in in my humble opinion, would have been prevented if proper patching was done and some common sense security was uh, implemented. Yeah, to answer your question, there'd be more of this because number one, if they were successful in the past, they would always come back to that. And given that there are different uh, technologies or malware technologies now that have been discovered that can be leveraged by malware uh, attackers, for them, it's uh, it's just a matter of time of leveraging those technologies and using them in, uh, in compromising companies that have uh, data on all of our uh, on 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 most of our uh, population here in the states. So I, I found the number. It was uh, five thousand two hundred and seven breaches totaling seven point eight billion compromised records, is according to one report that came out last week. And yeah, I, I'm kind of curious about what will lead to these breaches. I feel like we've seen a trend last couple of uh, years about these open source software, things that don't get updated, things that, you know, may have a small support team that, you know, they push out a patch and somebody may make, you know, may not prioritize it right. I'm curious if, if that may be a, a vector. 
Yeah, it's a good point. You know, I wonder, uh, I was chatting about that with somebody the other day with regards to the SDLC, the concept of the SDLC, right? You know, with commercially available products, I, number one, I, I think if I, in 2018, it, it goes without saying that anyone who's developing software consumable products, regardless of whether or not they're security products or not, really ought to be considering security in their development. But that, that mentality, right, to the open source community isn't necessarily entirely uh, ubiquitous, right? So, and then when you have corporations who look at open source or organizations, maybe they're not-for-profits or what have you, look at open source technology, and, and there's nothing wrong with open source. I mean, we're all big fans of open source, I think, on this call and on the show, and, never, and probably most people listening are. But when organizations and businesses make decisions to leverage open source technology, there's sort of a, a caveat, caveat emptor scenario set in, set in motion where it's really a, a case of buyer beware, right? In this case, no one's buying because it's open, but there are no guarantees of, of quality or secure development. So... Do the costs get then subsequently passed on to the shareholders and to the consumers? And at what point in time is, is there an even greater degree of, of onus and liability on, on behalf of the developers or the parties who elect to use open source in lieu of a comparable commercial solution? That was a lot. Sorry, I had two big cups of coffee today. <laughs> what do you guys what do you guys think of that? Uh, well, I can defer to Tofts here. <laughs> When it, come, when it comes to open uh, source, that's the risk that you, you always take if, if you use open source. Because number one, I don't think they have enough manpower or volunteers to actually review the code line by line to see if nothing's there or, or did it follow a secure development uh, life cycle. So th- there's nothing, most of the time they don't have that uh, resources. I've heard so many, like uh, there was an article one time, I can't remember what it is, but there was this one vulnerability that has been present, I think for the last seven or 10 years that uh, remain undiscovered until that researcher posted about it. But uh, they don't have any any data to say that uh, it has been used by attackers in the last seven, 10 years that it was available. So if, if I was an organization and I'm holding data that are really, really uh, important. I would make sure that if I use open source, that to have a team of developers go through it line by line, anyway, the, the source code should be available. And then uh, make sure it's something that they that they understand what's going on. It, 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 this is also true for malware writers. Like uh, most of the thing that's happening underground, we're in a, a highly motivated person with funds who just wants to buy malware would buy malware from the underground and then use it for his or her own attack campaign without really understanding what that malware is doing. And then when you get a hold of that malware, like us researchers, we would analyze it. We would see that uh, the malware is also stealing information, but sending it to a different channel, a channel controlled by the original owner of that malware. The person who bought it was using it for his or her own attack, but in the background, it's stealing information that's benefiting the original malware writer who sold that malware. So what you're saying is quality assurance and, and vetting is, is problematic with the criminal underground as well as the non-criminal you know, uh, users of software. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> human nature. In the news, right, you know, Toss, sometimes what we do on, on the show is kind of ask our, our guests about hot topics in industry. And Chris, you know, Brooke obviously just, just cited some statistics Recently, obviously, we've seen an advent of uh, malware uh, manifesting with respect to the Winter Olympics taking place in Pyongyang in uh, Pyeongchang, excuse me, 
not to be confused with P.F. Chang, which happened here in, in Chicago. Although you didn't see that on the news, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I saw that over in South Korea. So the Winter Olympics, you know, got targeted by malware, right? So uh, Olympic destroyer. Toss, have you seen have you seen that particular case? What are your thoughts on that? What are your insights with that with respect to that? I'd just love to get your opinion, and then we'll get we'll get Brooks's as well. Yeah, so uh, I haven't really analyzed the sample itself, the one that was uh, written by uh, Talos uh, Intelligence. I was expecting this to happen because uh, this happened also, I think, during the World Cup in Brazil, wherein uh, there was there were attacks on on the website and also on on the servers that are trying to disrupt the games, the World Cup games, uh, the soccer game or football. So when it comes to Winter Olympics, uh, it's not at least uh, for me and uh, for some of the researchers I work with. I don't think it came as a surprise that uh, there would be malware involved trying to disrupt the. Uh, the games and the thing about this malware mostly uh it's there to disrupt they, they were saying it's not there to steal information but there are codes in it based on the on the findings of uh talos that there are codes in it that if it wants to use that it would be able to uh steal some information from the compromised system I couldn't help but notice that this uh, allegedly also uses the same processes or u- utilities, rather, these Windows utilities that I guess figured into Bad Rabbit and not Petya, which are, are obviously legitimate, you know, real utilities that kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier about, you know, using real life software and incorporating it into uh, malware. Yeah, that's that's been noted, you know. Uh, Tops, what do you think about that? Do you think that... And I'll take us down this path because I think it's a natural segue and it's a good one, Chris Brooke. What do you think when people are starting to talk about Olympic Destroyer in terms of attribution? I've already heard some some rumblings about the comparisons being made to Ukrainian utilities, right? Which we which Chris Brooke just mentioned, you know, not Petya and Bad Rabbit. And I've already heard people starting to talk about, I think perhaps a bit prematurely, especially if they haven't had a time to analyze the malware and, and look at the infrastructure, attribution links to certain nations. What do you think about that? Do you think it's do you think this could be a case of where wherein it's comparable to those attacks and to those campaigns? Uh, do you think it could be a false flag operation? Do you think it's just too early to tell? I kind of fall into the latter camp, but uh, I haven't seen the malware. So what do you think? Yeah, so uh, I think attribution is always uh, tricky. Like attribution usually it's done uh, based on the tools used by the attackers the infrastructure they use to support the malware, even the style of coding when you look at the uh, malware code. But then again, most of these are digital evidence and it can be fake. Even though it has similarities with NotPetya and Bad Rabbit, it's possible that whoever uh, made these attacks got a hold of a sample of NotPetya and Bad Rabbit or, or, or their infrastructure, uh, how it works, and then just copied them. Because they said, you know what, we want to do this, and these are the functionalities that we need, and the functionalities that we need are already uh, satisfied by this uh, malware family that are already out there, and uh, we need an infrastructure that can do this, can do that, and a certain infrastructure that we know of can already do that, why not just copy that? So it's possible they copied it, and it's also possible that they're all linked to one the same threat actor. Like for me, I don't have all of the information. And and I think uh, even uh, the original posters uh, of this uh, malware uh, write-up, they're still researching. So uh, I think for now, it's it's uh, too early to tell. 
I think it's a little scary, just attribution in general sometimes. I mean, the, the Cisco post, the Talos post was a good, uh, well-written report, but I feel like I saw a couple other folks come out, you know, and try to try to pin down who it was and try to, you know, get into the attribution game. And it's just, uh, you know, a real, you, like you said, a real tricky thing that obviously can be faked. And there was a great paper from Byers Bolton last year by a guy who used to be a Kaspersky. Now he's at Recorded Future, uh, Juan Andres Gorriarosad, about just how false flags are just so recurrent and perpetual. Also, given the fact that it's, you know, the Olympics just started, it's a little, it could be a little reckless. Yeah, I, you know, it's having having more than a fair amount of experience in attribution analysis. I think that, you know, you always run the risk of potentially making poor decisions and announcing inconclusive conclusions, if that makes sense. And I think that it's a dangerous game if you're not, if you're not uh, in possession of not only just the malware, but also unbridled insight into infrastructure and you have enough information about that infrastructure and the threat actors that oftentimes isn't publicly available to lead you down down certain courses and paths. Very few organizations in the world have that kind of visibility. And I think it's important to bear that in mind, right? Attribution is not a trivial concept. It never has been. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it, you know, again, I think that it's it's not something you're going to necessarily be able to establish within what, 72 hours, 96 hours of, of the, the revelation of an attack. Seems kind of like a potentially problematic area. But uh, anyway, moving right along. Toss, is there anything else? We're getting close to the end of our hour with you. And thank you again for taking time. And thank you also to RSA and Dell for letting you participate. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, you have a second book out. Uh, you want to go ahead and tell us what the name of that book is? My first book is Mallory Kits and Botnets, uh, A Beginner's Guide. And then the second book is Advanced Malware Analysis. And then the third book, the one I co-authored, it's Hacking Exposed Malware and Rootkit. So if uh, the listeners have budget uh, to buy books, uh, especially it's Valentine's Day, if you want your significant other to go ahead, go ahead and start looking at well, malware. Yeah, You're a diehard. Here's a book for you. Right. You're, you're a diehard romantic. Have you given your wife a, a, a gift-wrapped version of that book yet, Toss? Uh, I gave her a car. <laughs> you gave her a car. There you go. Uh, it, oh, you but, you know, it's funny. Toss's wife actually came from a reverse engineering background as well. So it's a, so it's a little-known bit of trivia about Toss. But, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's great. Uh, Toss, where can people find out more about you as an individual researcher, an author, a speaker, and also the work you're doing at RSA? So uh, they can follow me on Twitter uh, at Tops, T-O-P-H-S. They can also add me in LinkedIn. So just look for Christopher Ellison on LinkedIn. Yeah. So I'm always happy to answer questions. Some people would send me messages in Twitter. And if it's easy, I answer immediately. If it's hard, it takes me years to answer. But ask me questions there. So <laughs> Very good. Chris, Brooke, anything you'd like to add? Uh, add before we wrap up uh, episode 18. No, it was a great, great uh, discussion. Learned a lot about malware. I didn't know that watering hole thing, by the way. So that was some at some new acquired knowledge on my part. <laughs> yes, folklore about uh, how Toss and I had a material hand in developing that term that's become kind of a, a popularized thing. I didn't realize it's part of a drinking game, though. That's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> kind of neat. With that in mind, this is episode 18 of the Digital Guardian podcast. Joining us today was Christopher Toffs Ellison of the RSA First Watch Research Organization and, and my co-host Chris Brook. And with that, 
Thank you for listening to episode 18. Uh, if you're interested in listening to our other episodes, you can find them on iTunes and I believe on SoundCloud as well. And uh, certainly on our on the digitalguardian.com website. For more information, you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm uh, at egosum. Uh, Chris is at Broken Views. And then, of course, you can hit us at Digital, at digital Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Episode 18 in the can. Mm-hmm.